Welcome back to another episode of Stimulate Your Mind, proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Hussain Farha again. It's been a lot, been a while since you've been on the podcast. And today, we'll be discussing the life of Fatima Zahra, salam, but more specifically, the Sermon of Fedak and the aspects of social justice in that sermon. Thank you very much for joining me, Hussain. Thank you for having me once again. Uh, it has been a long time. Uh, I just finished for my uh, period of examinations uh, for my pharmacy registration. So I'm excited to start again. Finally done with that study. And yeah, hopefully all goes well. Um, thank you actually for giving me this opportunity to speak about this topic. When we're looking at the history of the Sermon of Fatak for Sayyid al-Sahra, and uh, when I was preparing for this, I, I really felt that I could prepare even more each time but due to our limitations of time, I felt like to get this. Um, I've been very excited for yeah, the podcast. I know I've been annoying you a bit. No, nah, the messages and phone You're calls. I've been very excited for it. So, yeah, and it's good we're doing it at a time where we're celebrating the birth of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That's right. So, um, I want to congratulate you and your family on this holy occasion. As Thank well. you very much. Yeah. To start off with, you said you've been looking at it, and every time you look at something, you're like, okay, I need to look at more. I need to look at more. So, what things did you come across that made you? Want to research more, want to find more. I mean, it's not the first time I've heard or looked at the historic uh, incident of Fadak, but this time I looked at it at a, at a different perspective. I wanted to look at it from a um, general Islamic perspective at first, and I wanted to look at it for, through a perspective of social justice. Uh, someone like Sayyid al-Zahra, alayhi salam, who was 17 years of age when she conducted the sermon, and a sermon which she didn't prepare for, by the way, it just flowed from her, uh, very similar to the approach held by Imam Ali, um, and very similar to the approach held by her father in the eloquence of their speech. So for us to have something like this from Sayyidah Zahra, um, in that limited time that we have her after the death of the Prophet, which is unfortunate, we have to look at it in great detail, um, and from all the perspectives that we can possibly. To start off with, uh, you were mentioning before we started the podcast, you mentioned different people who had looked at this sermon, uh, various scholars, and you were surprised by some of the things that they had said. I was surprised with the array of perspectives I was uh, open to. I mean, you have even Orientalists that were comparing the Sermon of Sayyidah Zahra to the Halliday theory. I was, so, I was telling you earlier, and to me, there was something really interesting. I mean, who, who even thinks of something like that? Um, another perspective I looked at was from a Salafi perspective. So mm. someone like Ibn al-Qayyim al-Zawjiyya, who is very much influenced by the likes of um, Ibn Taymiyyah and later influenced people like Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab. He has his own commentary on it as well. So the fact that um, it's been studied by such an array of opinions and such an array of perspectives, it's, typically, um, uh, it's more fascinating than anything really. So if we were to simply look at it uh, in regards of importance, how important is this sermon to Muslims? To the Muslim nation as a whole, I think this piece of literature offers a, a closer look into the theology of our usul. And I'll explain what I mean by that. And later on, I'll show you how the uh, sermon is categorized into different topics and how each of the topics or each of the paragraphs displayed by Sayyid al-Zahra actually reflects uh, the inner meaning and the essence of usul al-Din which we share with our brothers and sisters in Sunnah, which are mainly Tawheed, uh, Nubuwa, and Mi'ad. So those three elements are highly echoed in her sermon. And later, 
Um, if you were to look at it from a Ithna Ashari perspective or a Jafari perspective, you will see the um, usul of uh, Adala and the usul of Imama being echoed as well. So to me, um, no matter how you're looking at it, you can definitely benefit from this sermon, especially from a lens of social justice. Perfect. Yeah. So before we go and dive into the sermon, I just want to look at the life of Sayyidah Fatima alayhi salam. I want to take a look at her as a wife, a daughter, a mother, and as an infallible. So what can you tell us about Fatima Zahra in the house of Sayyidah Fatima? Well, I mean, I don't even know where to start with this, but I think Sayyidah Zahra is the closest thing we have, both physically and metaphysically, um, or uh, in a personality sense, the closest we have to Rasulullah sallallahu And I was telling you earlier that when our scholars, even scholars outside of our madhab, when they look at the character of Sayyidah Zahra, they even explain things like her balance and her walk and her gait was similar to Rasulullah. Oh. So not even just the way she spoke or the way she represented herself. And it wasn't a manner of, she's just the daughter of the Prophet. The only daughter, by the way, because other schools do hold the belief that there were other daughters present. But the fact that she was able to portray her inner self, meaning, like I said earlier, the, when she was walking to the mosque to give this sermon, Abdullah ibn al-Imam al-Hassan, one of, um, uh, one of the, uh, the forefathers of um, the Ahlul Bayt, he's describing this incident, and he mentions that her walk was similar to that of the Holy Prophet, and that when she entered, the people felt as if the Prophet was alive again. Wow. And we're talking at a period of time where Rasulullah had died, and the connection between the heavens and earth was disconnected. So, in a way, she really brought that back, of course. And, um, I mean, it depends how you look at it, and through which um, school of thought it's analyzed. But there's no doubt that you can benefit from it in many ways. And how is she uh, portrayed as a wife to Imam Ali Well, there is a sermon for Imam Ali. I think it's after Sermon 45, where he's just explaining the personality of Sayyidah Zahra to him. And this is quite interesting because you're having a, the input or the opinion or, or the description of a ma'soom to a ma'soom. It's quite interesting, actually. You reminded me to say something as well, where he is speaking to one of his companions, and I'll say in Arabic first, just for me to able to translate. He goes, "Wakanat bin to Muhammad in Sakani." So, in the times of hardship, especially after the death of Rasulullah, I mean, they were grieved heavily with that loss, and no one else, like Ahlul Bayt, felt that loss in comparison to the companions. Definitely. And what I'm trying to say by that is when Rasulullah left this world, and we can explain the circumstances of that, and after that as well, the way it's described in the books of history, it's very similar to the end of time. Uh, as in this grief and this bleaky atmosphere was present in Medina. Um, and uh, Sayyidah Zahra was mostly affected by this. And the way she carries her sorrows and the way she carries her, her views on the caliphate after Rasulullah is reflected with how she deals with the person who took away her right. Um, and I hope this isn't too sensitive of a topic. I don't mean in any malice way or uh, I don't mean to 
misrepresent any school of thought here, but the literature is there. And when I said earlier that it's been analyzed by an array of scholars, uh, it's for this reason that I, I, I think it's very important for people of different faiths to look at it. Definitely. Uh, to add on, actually, something very interesting that I came across, uh, one of the companions of Imam al-Bakr comes to him and he goes, can you describe to me your grandmother Fatima, alayha? And he goes, we are known to be the hujjah of Allah on the people. And he goes, but Fatima is the hujjah on Allah upon us. That's fascinating. For a masoom to say that I am one of God's proof onto you, but my grandmother Fatima is God's proof upon us. Not upon us, the Muslims, upon us, the Imams. And this is specifically from an ethno Ashri perspective. So it's quite fascinating. I mean, it's not an easy thing to say. No, definitely. And it requires like, us to ponder into it like, really deeply. It shows the status of Sayyidah Fatima in Islam. Definitely. Uh, fact that she's she's a truth upon the imams not of just course, upon muslims yeah. and and i mean if we were to just look at her role i mean look she passed away when she was 17 years, 17 years of age so we don't have much that's right of years to look onto but i'll give you one example when rasulullah used to go into battles Sayyidah fatima used to play a role even in those battles where she would help heal the wounded to that extent something that surprised me i came across this is present both in sunni and Shia literature even Zaydi literature comments on this, that she was present helping Imam Ali with his wounds. Yeah, so it's not like her role only started after the death of the Prophet. Her role was established ever since she was born. So if we were to like take a look at the importance of her role before the passing of the Prophet and then afterwards, which role do you, would you say after what you've looked at is greater? Interesting question. I mean, you can look at it through various... Uh, perspectives here. Before the, uh, the passing of Rasulullah, Sayyidah Fatima played a role in the message of Islam because she learned from her mother Khadija, Khadija bint Kuwaitid, who, according to us, is one of the four women that are bestowed up, uh, upon this universe with Sayyidah Maryam, Sayyidah Fatima, and Sayyidah Khadija. Mm. I believe the other one is Sayyidah Asiya. Asiya. So it's what she had, what she contributed to the message of Islam during the life of Rasulullah, was reflected also in her dealings with her mother Khadija. And after, when the Prophet passed away, I mean, she passed away about six months after, so there wasn't really much to look into. But despite that short duration of time, you find that she was one of the first people to uh, remind people to go back to their religion. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a bit. She was the first person to be the defender of the concept of imama and that's more specifically from an ethno ashri perspective and she was responsible for bringing people back into the fold through a perspective of philosophy and it's weird that i say that because we have a lot of hadith among the imamiyah that discourage people from philosophy but what i mean by that is the way she describes allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this sermon of fadak is reminding people hey stop don't go to the way of the ignorance as you were before. And it's, it's quite fascinating, the eloquence of her words. Um, it doesn't surprise me that the only match for her was Ali Abi Talib mm. and no one else, honestly. Before diving into that sermon, I just want to take a look at something which I, I, I just realized, which is very weird. She's the only mother of two Imams. That's correct. 
how important was her role as a mother in raising both Imam Hassan السلام, and Imam Hussain السلام, as Imams? Great question, actually. Uh, I would reference upon the Imam Al Hassan, where he talks about the uh, uh, the lessons he's learned from his fat- from his mother Fatima Zahra السلام, uh, whether it starts from wudu and all the way to when she was praying Salat al-Layl. The Imams witnessed this day by day when Imam Al Hassan would wake up in the middle of the night and realize that his mother was praying Salat al-Layl. And in the supplications of Arba'in Mu'min, you know, you have she to was like mentioning everyone else's names. She was mentioning all the neighbors. And yeah. then Imam Hassan was like, what about, what about us? What about me? <laughs> he goes, So those kind of philosophies, those kind of lessons were ingrained in Imam Hassan and Imam Hussain from an early age. And you see that later, especially through Imam Hassan. And it's actually fascinating. And just one more thing. She's also the mother of Sayyidah Zainab Now, Sayyidah Zainab's role in Islam, to me, is one of the most important, especially after the events of Karbala. What lessons did Sayyidah Zainab take in standing against oppression and social justice, so standing for social justice from her mother, Fatima Zahra? We spoke last time in the, uh, the podcast regarding social justice in the message of Imam Hussain. Yep. We spoke about the role of the women post-Karbala, or in Sham specifically. And we highlighted the role of Sayyidah Zainab and when she was speaking to Yazid in his court, where instead of him uh, being looked at as a victorious leader after a battle, she made him look like a speck of dust. And this was just through her words. And a similar understanding can be taken from the stance of Sayyidah Zahra in the Sermon of Fadak. And to be able to understand that, one must look into the context of uh, the Sermon of Fadak, of course. But what I'm trying to get to here is even Rasulullah comments on this. Yep. So Rasulullah is approached, is sitting down with his companions, specifically Abu Bakr, and, Abu ba- and Fatima enters and Rasulullah stands up, goes to him, I, I've seen you do this on multiple occasions. What's the reasoning behind this? Abu Bakr was interested to know, that, should I do this with my daughter? Should, I, should we all do this with our daughters? He goes, no. When your daughter walks in, you don't have to stand up. And this... Uh, applies to all other Muslims as well. Yeah. But when Fatima walks in, I, ha- I have to stand up because she is Ummu Abiha. So I try to, try to let that sink in a bit. The mother, the mother of Rasulullah is his daughter. Don't take this quite literal. It, yeah. it has a more metaphysical understanding. Definitely. But what haq does the mother of Rasulullah have on him? I mean, it's quite amazing. And just one more thing on Sayyidah Zainab. So, both Fatima Zahra and Sayyidah Zainab delivered some of the most powerful sermons. So we have the Sermon of Sayyidah Zainab in Sham, yep. which essentially saved Islam. Definitely. Is that another thing that she was taught by her mother to be able to speak and give a sermon in the way that she did? I mean, she was sta- like Sayyidah Fatima gave her sermon in the Mosque of the Prophet, Masjid al-Nabawi. Yep. And Sayyidah Zainab gave her her speech in the court of Yazid, both very, let's say, grand places and not very easy places to speak in, especially for a woman. Yes. You actually read my mind with that. I mean, in the instance of Sayyidah Zahra, don't forget, about 23 years earlier, these people were burying their daughters. That's right. So for someone to walk into the mosque and, uh, I mean, she was accompanied by a, uh, uh, by a group of her women. Mm. 
and Sayyidina Muhammad Bakr Sadr actually comments on this. Well, and what I'm trying to, what, the reason I'm mentioning this, I'm trying to show that things weren't done haphazardly. It wasn't a coincidence. And when I, when I was first mentioning about her balance and her walk, that it was very similar to Rasulullah, this is what he's talking about. That she walked into the mosque with a group of her women and her maids and the women of the household of the Prophet. Maybe to say that Zainab was um, in her mind then. You never know. And for her to actually walk in and to speak with such veracity, so much confidence, these people weren't really accepting to that. Because like I said, 23 years ago, these people were okay with burying their daughters right. alive. Let alone now someone telling you this is how the sunnah of Rasulullah has to right. be conducted. Teaching them about Islam. Yeah. And mind you, she was, again, 17 years of age. Go look at what 17-year-olds are doing. That's right. You, you'll find a, a huge difference. Not because she's the daughter of Rasulullah. Not because she is Fatima. Because she adopted the true philosophy of Islam into her practice. And it wasn't something just haphazard. It was something very much intended. Definitely. Looking into the Sermon of Fadak. So she walks into the Masjid Nabawi and she's, she asks for a sitar. Yep. She asks for um, basically a divide yeah, a uh, between the men and the women. Yep. How important is that? To me, it shows uh, a very important point. Um, during my university studies, I came across a unit. It was called The Politics of the Veil in the Islamic World. And the lecturer, I forgot her name, to be honest. Maybe it's even better. I've forgotten her name. But uh, she was presented from the US to us, and it was quite interesting. And she was trying to show uh, how certain feminist movements, uh, especially early century Islamic movements, uh, took the example of the daughter of Abi Bakr in rising against Imam Ali and how women were able to openly express their beliefs. And uh, she's trying to encourage the movement of She's trying to encourage so-called feminist movement. I mean, that word is loaded now both politically and culturally. So I don't mean any intention by that. Uh, But what I'm trying to say is, Sayyidina Muhammad Sadr says, instead of taking someone like Aisha, because her pursuit was not entirely on her when she was facing Imam Ali in Jannah. But when you look at someone like Sayyidina Zahra, even her mannerisms in conducting her sermon were in accordance to the Quran. And that's why, what I'm trying to say here is that she asked for the cloak to show that the veil he, the, the veil that I'm wearing and the veil that I'm putting up isn't a barrier to me expressing my opinions. Mm. The fact that I wear a hijab, the fact that I wear whatever I wear, and you can characterize however you like, didn't stop her from actually going into the mosque and delivering a sermon. And you'll find this in early texts like uh, the uh, book of Ihtijaj by Alama Tabrasi, or even if you look later to more contemporary ulama and more recent ulama like uh, Sayyid Muhammad Baqir Sadr or uh, Sayyid Lutfallah Gul Kaipani yep. or even if you look at Sayyid Muhammad uh, Sayyid Muhammad Sadiq Shirazi he has an input on that so uh, like I said earlier the array of opinions is, is huge so you can take from any perspective you'd like really. taking the next step in the sermon I'm just going to read the line yeah, no, uh, which you've it. probably got in front of you as well Sayyidah Zahra السلام, heaved a, a sorrowful sigh from her scorched and aggrieved heart, such that all of those pre- present were affected by it and began to weep. I mean, the way, the way it's expressed in Arabic is much more beautiful, and it loses translation here, but it's, it's true. Sayyidah Zahra, in Arabic it says, فَأَنَّ تَأَنَّ فَبَدَأَ النَّاسُ بِالْبُكَاءِ 
and and she couldn't continue the sermon until the people stopped. Which was, right. It which says was, here it was converted into a mourning ceremony. Exactly. So what I'm trying to say is that this reflects the atmosphere of the Islamic world just a few days or even weeks after Rasulullah has passed away. We were talking earlier when we were talking about the social justice of Imam Hussein. That was 61 AH. This is about 13 AH. This is moments after Rasulullah had passed away. And that inclination towards going away from the Sunnah was present. So can you imagine how big the gap started to form later in history? To the point where Karbala had to take place, or even later, closer to Ghaiba. How far were people away from the, sunnah, the true Sunnah of Rasulullah? So what role did this sermon play in basically trying to present this Sunnah back to the Muslims after the passing of the Prophet? So I want to reference you Sayyid Muhammad Bakr al-Sadr, where he actually breaks down the sermon into uh, very important theological perspectives. Something that I had never heard before, uh, and it taught me a lot personally. So number one, and I liked what you mentioned earlier about how it became, became a session of mourning, that the first point he mentioned is lamentation of those who are present. So she's lamenting, first of all, Rasulullah. And she's lamenting those who are present because they've lost the true teachings of Rasulullah. And perhaps Sayyidah Zahra can see the future here. Perhaps Sayyidah Zahra can see that if now this is happening, what else can happen later in history? When there's even more uh, alienation away from the Sunnah of Rasulullah. So the first, the first, like we said, is lamentation of those who are present. And then she goes into the praise and eulogy of the Lord when she speaks about Tawheed, in a way where it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And then her third point, which is actually quite important, is focusing upon memorizing the Quran. And then the fourth point, which I think is really, really, really um, fundamental, especially in uh, Shia theology, is, folk, is concentration upon the philosophy and aim of divine ordinance. And then she gets into the decisiveness of the Prophet in strengthening the path of guidance. And then this point, which I think Again, plays a huge role in when I said earlier that she was one of the first defenders of Imama. She, spoke, she speaks about the role of Imam Ali in the defense of Islam, both pre-Rasulullah's death and post-Rasulullah's death. And then she speaks about the criticism against the treachery of man, and he not man as in the gender, no, as in, as the in man, man, as in humanity. Yeah. As in humanity. And the last point is her intense criticism of Al-Ansar, specifically. And that's mentioned actually in detail in her sermon. Yeah. So, the reason I'm mentioning this breakdown is when you look at the sermon from a grammatical perspective, there's a cohesion there. Yep. And what I was saying earlier that you find all these studies, I actually came across, I just have to reference this. I came across a PhD study conducted in Iran um, in the Department of Hadith Studies, uh, the Department of Quranic and Hadith Studies by Shahid University in Iran. This uh, is conducted by Soraya Gutbi and Kolsum Rostami. Um, they um, conducted this uh, a few years ago, and they were looking at the elements of grammatical cohesion in the Sermon of Fadak. And why is that important? Because number one that highlights to us is, is this sermon actually authentic? Because if Sayyidah Zahra is going to deliver a sermon, and this sermon is full of grammatical uh, errors and literary mistakes, I don't think it could be attributed to Sayyidah Zahra especially to someone of her level of linguistic ability. Number two, 
and this is what the study looks at specifically. She looks at the study looks at Sayyid al-Zahra's use of ellipses, substitutions, Quranic references, and connectivity of words, which are the most outstanding constructive components used among the literary devices in the Sermon of Fadr. Let me explain, let me unpack what I mean. Yeah. Like I said, Sayyid al-Zahra starts her sermon in sections. And the first section she highlights is the Tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I want to just read a few lines and I apologize uh, if I'm reading directly is I don't want to paraphrase this great lady. I, I think she deserves much better than that. So no, I have to read definitely. it directly. So this is how she starts her sermon. And why am I going all the way back to Tawheed? Because she, she understood that this is necessary. It is necessary for people to reconnect with the concept of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is one of the first concepts of school I came with. But wait a second, this happened 23 years ago. Why is she revisiting it? Yep. That's what I'm getting to. And how does this relate to the issue of Fatak and her right of inheritance? So look what she says. Praise be to Allah and his bounties upon us. And thanks be to him for all that he has inspired. And that he has commended in his name for all the bounties he has created before our own creation. She continues to speak about how the creation of Allah offers a praise towards him. And it results in an increase in, a, in the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The philosophical concepts explored here are fascinating. And again, I want to remind you, this woman is 17 years of age. Show me a 17-year-old philosopher that can do that nowadays. So she says, I bear witness that there is no other deity except Allah. He is unique and unparalleled. Certainly, interpretation and result of this witness of monotheism is sincere and its comprehension has been placed in the hearts and the mind is illuminated by its profound understanding. Again, because she continues to say, He, Allah, cannot be seen with the eyes, nor can he be described with the tongues. His state cannot be perceived. She continues, and this is what fascinates me, to be honest. Uh, he is the one who created all things without any past prototype. Wow. And originated, the wow's from me, by the way. <laughs> and originated them without having any past image or equals. That really describes the true essence of Tawheed. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created any kind of being you want to think of without actually using an example of it. There was no one else to use. There was no right. other example for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to use for his creation. So this highlights Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creativity his authenticity and his originality because he is the original. He is right. the origin. So that's something that she found of high importance because people had to reconnect with the concept of a deity and a concept of that is one God and this God has placed rules that we have to adhere by and not because that the Prophet has passed away, we could do our own type of ishtihad. See, I find that very concerning that Fatima Zahra in her sermon not long after the passing of the Prophet, has to re-explain Tawheed to the Muslims. As in, the Prophet hadn't been gone for that long, but then Fatima al-Zahra has to come again and explain to them Tawheed. Why is that the case? I think it's a bit more disturbing, to be honest. I think these questions took place before the death of the Prophet. And that's why you find verses that say, and I'm going to say in Arabic, Muhammadun illa 
So such philosophies were actually proposed before the death of Rasulullah. So it's no surprise that it could happen after him because it happened before him. And Muhammad is not but a messenger of Allah. If he, is, if he dies or is killed, which proposes the idea that this is possible, if he dies or is killed, you turn back on your heels and whoever turns back on the heels does not harm Allah in any way or form. So the, these kind of notions were actually proposed during the life of Rasulullah. And if you were to look at it into more detail, uh, things like the calamity of Thursday were highlighted. Uh, things like when certain companions would disagree with the conduct of Rasulullah. And this was open criticism, by the way. And uh, Rasulullah had to tell these people that I have a direct command from the, from the heavens. Right. To question me is problematic here. It's not like questioning a scholar or questioning a marja of the clear. This is the origin of the wahi that we have. And the last one, by the way. So in essence, they're questioning God. Of course. That's why she's re-emphasizing on this. In, in so much detail, by the way. And that's what Sayyid Muhammad Bakr Sadr mentions that Sayyidah Zahra actually had to remind people of the Tawheed of Allah SWT. Mm. Not that the people left the religion. I'm not, that's not what I mean. It's not that the people uh, believed in Hubal and Uzza mm. and Allah again. But she could see that their behavior was shaky. And she had to address it. And she did. For Fatima Zahra to come in and address this issue as a lady, how important is that in front of, for example, the Khalifa of the time? I mean, that unfolds in itself another question because she's challenging the institution that was formed after Rasulullah. Yeah, so she was challenging the institution that was formed after Rasulullah, which was the concept mainly of uh, the appointment or the election of Abu Bakr as a caliph. Yeah. And for her to express her disinterest Say something here because it's not like a regular individual is expressing this, this interest. No, definitely. It's Fatima, of Rasulullah. And she mentions that throughout her sermon. But what's more important here is that when she realized, uh, I, I was actually listening to this on my way, when she realized that she was victimized, she didn't play the victim role. And unfortunately, we have this misconception of the Ahlul Bayt, especially in that little time period, mm -hmm. that the Ahlul Bayt rolled over and just kept to themselves and didn't leave the house and did not resist and did not express their opinion. And that is what it was. So does Fatima Zahra show her concern for the fact that Abu Bakr is the Khalifa now and not Imam Ali salam? Interesting. I, I was hoping to actually get into that later, but since you asked, I'll give you an example. Ibn Abi al-Hadid al-Mu'tazili, who is one of the scholars of Ahl-Sunnah, he has a commentary on Nahj al-Balagha and within the commentary, I forgot what page exactly it was. I could probably place it in the comments if you'd like later. He uh, is narrating a story uh, he has with his teacher, which his name is Ibn Fariki. His teacher is Ibn Fariki. So he tells him, I want to ask you, he was uh, his teacher in Baghdad, by the way. And Ibn Abhazid al-Mu'tazili, um, his Sharh of Nahj al-Balagha is taken even from Shia sources as well. Um, someone who follows the Salafi perspective won't consider someone like Ibn Abdul to be reliable. So, like I said, it depends which perspective you're looking at it from. But ne nevertheless, the perspective of Ibn Hadid al-Mu'tazili is through this story that I wanted to mention. He told his uh, teacher, which is uh, Ibn Fariqi, he tells him, was Fatima right in asking for her right in Fadak? And he goes to him, yes, she was. The evidence that she brings forward, um, especially the Quranic references, and especially when I was referencing earlier, her delivery of these evidence, yep. the Quranic references, that's what I mean, by the way. 
So he told him, Fatima was right in asking for Fazak and presenting the evidence. And then he tells him, this is the student asking his teacher. Ibn al-Hadith asks him, he goes, then why didn't Abu Bakr give it back to her? He tells him, interesting. He goes, if the first Khalifa had given a Fadak back to Fatima alayhi salam, that next day, Fatima would have come back asking the first Khalifa the right to, give of back, to give back the right of Khilafah. You finished my sentence, which is brilliant. So to even to a Sunni alim, um, and, and he specifically, you have to look at it not just from a Sunni Shia perspective. You have to look at it at a much closer lens. No, definitely. Sayyidah Zahra is highlighting that Fadak is not only an issue of inheritance, because that's more a fuqi uh, discourse. She's showing that Fadak is a result from a theological difference. And that's why in the beginning I was speaking about the usul of the deen. Now when she's speaking about uh, the issue of the caliphate, or the issue of, uh, sorry, Fadak, she's trying to echo the issue of the caliphate through it. And that's why she speaks about concepts like al-mi'ad, which is the day of judgment, the concept of tawheed, and the concept of nubuwa of Rasulullah, which is fascinating. That how, I, I mean, it's actually uh, uh, amazing how she can draw that conclusion and how she can connect two different ideas, something to do with fuqa, she's connecting something to do with aqidah. So yeah, definitely emphasize. So we'll start to take a look at your findings um, on the Sermon of Fadak, beginning with the uh, beginning with Tawheed, so the first part of the sermon, praise and eulogy for the Lord and witness of the unity of Allah and the Prophet of Muhammad. Look what she says here, actually. And when she's describing the, the philosophies of Tawheed, now, the Arabs worshipped many gods. Uh, idolatry was a common practice then. And the main three gods was Allah, Tubal, and Uzza. And the Arabs revered them. And Rasulullah came, he kind of broke those idols of ignorance, mainly. And Quraysh was aware of the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but they had denied his existence and favored the existence of Allah, Tubal, and Uzza. So when Rasulullah came, the issues were more to do with social challenges and issues of social justice were more problematic to the Arabs than of theological differences. To an Arab in the 7th century, to him it really didn't matter if he believed in one God or 77. Mm. What mattered to him was uh, the social issues. And that's why when Rasulullah gave a voice to someone like Bilal, he was, a, he was black in color, right? So Rasulullah was challenging the notions of race at such times, Sayyidah Zahra was re-echoing those issues of social justice. So what specific issues were, were challenged? Like I said, when she's beginning her, her sermon, she starts describing the status of the Islamic community before Rasulullah came to them as a prophet. So she says specifically in Arabic. Uh, I want to, of course, say in Arabic so I can just understand of her translation. She goes, Kuntum muskata sharib wa al asyan. People would walk all over you. The Roman Empire was present and you as a civilization had no threat to them at all. So she's speaking in the lens of a geopolitical understanding. This is amazing. This is someone who's 17 years old. Definitely. And this is someone who truly understood the message of Islam from a social justice perspective. So she was saying, you were on the brink of breaking your civilization. And you were on the brink of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sending you all to hell. Mm. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved you through my father. She says in Arabic, فَأَنْكَذَكُمُ اللَّهُ 
فأنقذكم الله تبارك وتعالى بأبي محمد. So she does that in a very fascinating way, um, where she's showing that if it wasn't for my father, Rasulullah, these rights that you're enjoying won't be present, especially to the companions of Rasulullah, especially to them. Because he was able to give someone, like I said, Abadar and, and Bilal voices that the Arab society wasn't ready to hear. So she came with something very similar to Rasulullah. And what I find um, amazing in that line is that Fatima Zahra, while speaking, is showing her power as well. Of course. And she's showing like... Definitely. No, she's, she's not just the daughter of the Prophet. No, she, like, as you mentioned before, she's a hujjah on the imams and showing her power through that, those kinds of words, like you were on the brink of falling into hell yeah. and my father saved you. Definitely. Like, yeah. And we, we have to take into consideration the Arab mentality at the time um, and the culture at the time that women were not seen as powerful or being able to speak. Exactly. Or exactly. of any status in society. But then you have Fatima Zahra challenging the Khalifa yep. and all the Muslims at the time. She challenged the social norms and wasn't afraid to pursue her injustice, even if it meant that she would perish as a result. And other ulama have a different perspective on that as well. Just, just that you mentioned that, that, that she was not afraid to perish after the result of that. Yeah. What do you mean by that? So she wasn't afraid of the consequences, whether a physical or emotional harm was a result from the sermon. She was ready to show the Muslim world and maybe future more than present, I think her sermon was too sophisticated for the present to hear and understand. Um, I'll give an example of what she says and how she meant the sunnah of Rasulullah started to drag away from its original source. She starts saying, you acted very swiftly, dreading the outbreak of an agitation. So she's speaking after the death of Rasulullah. Beware that they themselves have fallen into the pit of agitation. Surely into trial have they already fallen. And verily he encompasses the infidels. Far be it away from you. What has happened to you? Where are you wandering while the book of Allah is among you? That's a very heavy message. Definitely. To say, where are you while the book of Allah is among you? Let me tell you something. The Quran then was not present, especially from a Sunni perspective as a physical copy. So who does she mean as a Quran here? So you have a walking talking Quran, by the way. On the contrary, the Shia perspective delivers that the Quran was present during the time of Imam Ali and Rasulullah. So look, look what she says. She's speaking about the, the love of the world and how it can take you away from the Sunnah of Rasulullah, whose orders are apparent. She's talking about the orders of the Quran. Yep. Whose orders are apparent and judgments are illuminated. Emblems are dazzling and prohibitions are straightforward. Did you not leave it behind your backs, then turn your faces away from it? Disgust and turn to something else for judgment? Wow. Because she says to continue. You did not even wait that the tempest may come down. Rather, you hasten. So she, he, she's expressing on how fast the movement took place. Is she, is she looking at the final moments of Rasulullah here? I mean, the final moments of Rasulullah truly were so sad. I mean, when he asks to write on a piece of paper something for the for Muslim nation, something that you're not going to go astray from. He says you'll never go astray. Yeah, from. like, look, 
I, I would hold that as gold, even more than gold. And, and it's interesting how uh, history took its, uh, took its place. But look what she um, continues to say. Uh, and it's, uh, it's actually pretty fascinating. She goes, you did not even wait that the tempest may calm down. Rather, you hastened to take the reins of the caliphate into your own hands. After having acquired it, meaning the caliphate, you started to ignite the fire of mutiny and you became engrossed in inciting the fire. You responded to the call of Satan, the seducer, and you intended to put it on the light of the glorious religion. You started to destroy the practice of the chosen one. Then you delighted into suckling the delicacies of the caliphate and opposed the Ahlul Bayt in secret and open. This is reflecting a person who isn't happy. Not at all. And why is it important? Why am I saying, like, why do I think that the perspective of Sayyidah Zahra is important? Because we have a hadith. And it's not just a matter of one or two hadith. These are philosophical principles that we cannot turn away from. When Rasulullah says, Fatima bata'atun minni, man aghdaba faqad aghdabani, wa man adha faqad adhani, that Fatima is a part of me. Whoever angers her, angers me. This is showing her anger yeah. and who has angered her. And this is sh- it shows what it signifies as well. So that's why she's expressing her opinion because she knows her place in the Islamic society. And it knows what, what kind of effect it will have on people. Just looking at that, you just mentioned she knows her place in society. Is that taking a look at that? Fatima Zahra in this sermon is not only there to win back her right of Fadak, but also her right of her status. This is described beautifully by Sayyidina Muhammad Bakr Sadr. And this is what he says in the translated copy of the book titled uh, Fadak in Islamic History. This is what Sayyidina Sadr explains. He goes, she wanted to emphasize to the people, just in case someone had a misunderstanding, or someone had a misrepresentation, or perhaps someone in the future might have this misrepresentation. Well, wa'lamu anni Fatima. I find that to be the most powerful line in the Salah. Know that I am Fatima and my father is Muhammad. Who else could say that? Our studies show, especially studies um, written by more contemporary Sunni ulama, show that Rasulullah had about 100,000 companions. Which of them can say that sentence? What I say, it's not just haphazard. It's not just something in the air. It signifies something so important that you should be listening. You better be careful because if you're not listening, you're not paying attention. And what I'm about to say is going to be a hoja on you on the day of judgment. And that's what happened. Wow. That's why, that's why I'm trying to say that she was trying to emphasize the usul of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that there is a day of judgment. There, this, there's this idea of or notion of mihad, a, mo- a notion of akhirah that you might have your way because Fatak was not returned to later, by the way. That's right. When you look at it from an... Uh, Historical perspective, the second actually gave it back according to some studies. Uh, the second being Umar ibn al-Khattab. Uh, uh, some of our ulama, mainly Sayyid Muhammad Bakr Sadr, does um, hold the view that he did give it back to her. But the first during his lifetime didn't. And his perspective on that was, I have heard a hadith from Rasulullah explaining that us, the, uh, uh, the prophets, we do not leave inheritance. What we leave is to be distributed as charity. And there weren't many that had heard that hadith. He was one of the few that had um, 
heard apparently from Rasulullah, but Sayyidah Fatima, and what I was trying to say earlier, I'm trying to connect all this together, yeah. by the way. She was trying to say that the notion of inheritance is a Quranic notion. And for you to go away from the Quranic principles is reflecting the, legit the, the, the legitimacy of your caliphate. So as valid as your argument is, that's how valid your caliphate is. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating to it is. what she does. So she's, she's showing him like, was it intentional that you turned back on the book of Allah? Is this something that you're conscious of? Because don't forget, you're not speaking to someone who doesn't know this stuff. No, definitely. Yeah. You're speaking to one of the first Muslims. Exactly. And Sayyidah Zahra was very aware of the content that she had to portray. So she's speaking to him in a language which, number one, he understands. Definitely understands. And number two, he knows who he's dealing with. Someone that was raised day in, day out with Rasulullah. Someone who Abu Bakr saw her stand, saw Rasulullah stand up for her. So he it's understands her status. Of course. And he knows her status in the eyes of Rasulullah and Allah subhanahu Of course. And the, and the companions had seen Rasulullah, how he was treating Fatima. Because Rasulullah wanted to set an example on how you should treat your daughter. Don't forget, these daughters were buried 23 years ago. Right. So he's trying to set a sunnah here. That Sayyidah Fatima is saying, are you conscious of your attempt to go away from the sunnah of Rasulullah? And I don't mean this in an offensive way. At the end of the day, I'm, I'm giving you and I'm, I'm focusing more on the Ithna Ashari perspective. Other ulama from different uh, uh, schools of thought would have a different perspective. Like I said earlier, Ibn al-Jawzi considers all this hocus pocus. And it just, it depends who you want to look at as a reference. But one thing that you can't change is the Quranic references you use. I mean, we could use different hadith books. We could use different ulama. The Quran stands. But the Quran does stand, of course. And it's interesting that when she brings all these uh, arguments forward, I want to actually um, just bring them up. Uh, when she starts giving the examples of Solomon and David, yeah. or giving the examples of Yahya and Zakaria, it's, these are Quranic principles yeah. that are very hard to challenge. And it's actually impossible to challenge, so, especially being a Muslim. Yeah, exactly. So, and it's interesting. I'll tell you why it's interesting specifically. Uh, a week ago, we had something called the Calamity of Thursday. That's right. So, Rasulullah had passed away, I think, uh, um, uh, three days after the calamity of a Thursday or four days. I think he had passed away on a Monday. And the accounts of history, especially the Ithna Ashri perspective, so if you look, look, uh, look at the books of history, especially Sheikh al-Bufid, he comments that one of the first policies set by the institution of uh, the caliphate after Rasulullah was bringing, uh, taking Padak away from Fatima to Zahra. And, and my language is very specific here. Because Rasulullah had given Fadak to her during her life. It's not like so it wasn't happen. afterwards. No, it was it nothing afterwards. to be inherited. It was given to it her. It was given. But if it was to be looked at a issue of inheritance, Sayyidah Zara had She no still arguments. has a right. Yeah. So it's something that was as shining as the sun. And she uses that phrase, by the way. So Fadak was given to her during the life of Rasulullah. So even if you were to look at it from a fuqi perspective, she had the position of Fatak during Rasulullah's time. When Rasulullah passed away, uh, one of the first policies of the institution after Rasulullah's death was to um, take Fatak away from her. And then he uh, brings about the argument that you need to bring me witnesses. You need to bring witnesses that dictate that Rasulullah gave it, gave it to you. Does not Fatima Zahra give a reply to that? It's interesting. Actually. So she says, I am the one who had possession of Fadak during Rasulullah's time. 
after he passes away, if you have evidence of something else, you have to bring it, not me. That's right. I'm in possession of this. If I walk to your house right now, like, hey, this is mine, mm. bring me proof it's yours. You, you simply being in the house is enough proof that you own the house. And a fucky perspective, like I said, in, and what we're talking, I want to bring more the theological aspects. Yeah. It's not fucky. Fucky is very simple in this. That's right. It's, 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 right, it's black and white. It's black and white. I want to bring out the theory, the theology that say the Fatima is trying to portray here, which is much deeper. So, like what I was saying earlier, when she brings about Quranic references, especially uh, the one I referenced with the PhD study, look at it. It's fascinating. The elements of grammatical cohesion in the Sermon of Fadak. It's in English, by the way. Sayyidah Zahra brings forward Quranic arguments and uh, the first Khalifa puts on top a hadith from Rasulullah. Now, first of all, according to our theory, uh, or according to our theology, sorry, uh, the nas from a Quran or a, a text from the Quran that's unambiguous uh, takes precedence over any hadith, even if the hadith has a chain of diamonds. Mm. And I say that specifically because we have the golden chain in the Shia. Yep. Uh, but even if the hadith has a, has a chain of diamonds, any text from the matter. Quran supersedes yep. it. And it's interesting because when Rasulullah wanted to write something in the calamity of Thursday, what was the response? What did one of them say? He said, this man is delirious. And continue. The Quran is enough for the Quran, us. Yeah. Wait, hold on here. I, I'm confused. Is the Quran enough for us? Or are we taking the hadith as burdens over the ayat of the Quran? Because that's what Sayyidah Fatima is using. So that's what she's trying to highlight. That... Are we intentionally going away from the Quranic principles? Are we doing this on purpose? Is she implying that or saying that it did happen? Ah, that's a hard question. I can't enter the thoughts of Sayyidah Zahra. I wish I could. I mean, I would never be able to handle it. What could you, what could you say through the sermon? Sayyidah Fatima is specifically using ayat of the Quran because she knows that this kind of evidence, you can't refute it. No matter how many times you heard the Rasulullah say a hadith, you can hear a billion hadith from Rasulullah. If you have a, uh, a, a ayah from the Quran, it will supersede it in any way or form. Ask any mufassir on this earth who agree with you. Whether that mufassir is from the Salafi school of thought or someone like Ayatollah Tabatabai uh, in his tafsir of Mizan because he, he places a, a comment on this, by the way. And he has his own comment saying that the Quran, the text of the Quran, supersedes the, uh, any hadith of Rasulullah. So yeah, it's definitely fascinating. So essentially, is there an issue here that she's trying to address, but she knows that she has the right answer before giving it to them? Let me quote her, actually. I think that's the best way of answering this question. So this comes uh, uh, under the title, because I was breaking it down, her reasoning of Fatak. And she, she continues in her sermon to say, the sermon is long. Yeah, um, it's very long. Yeah, it's a long but sermon. If, but yeah. if there were any sermons recommended to read, this would be one of them. Definitely, because uh, like I said, the literary devices used here, you won't see it elsewhere. You won't see it elsewhere, unless you're looking at the sermons of Ali and Abi Talib, mm. and which the fascinating their own source. And we have Najib Balagha in there. And Imam Ali comments on that in Najib Balagha, by the way. Wow. So this is what she says in her sermon. Now you presume that we do not have any inheritance from the prophets. Do you follow the custom of the age of ignorance? Is it the judgment of the days of ignorance that they desire? Who can be better than Allah to judge for the people of the assured faith? Indeed, look what she says. 
Indeed, it is as bright as the sun that I am the daughter of the Prophet of Allah. O Muslims. And now she's not just talking to the first caliph. She's, she's talking, talking to everyone. Including us. And that's why we're having this today. She goes, O Muslims, is it befitting that I am deprived of my inheritance? And then she specifically asks, O son of Abi Quhafa, meaning Abu Bakr, the first caliph, is it contained in the glorious book that one should not inherit from their father? While in your opinion, I should not inherit mine? Indeed, you have come to an unusual thing. To me, that's interesting how she describes it. What you're doing is unusual. I think he, she wanted to be polite in her description. She wanted to say that the sunnah that you're proposing is not going in coherence with the sunnah of Rasulullah. And I don't mean that in any uh, uh, offensive way. I'm just showing you the, what we have available through our ulama and how they're not just interpreting that, how they're commenting on it on top. So what, what is the interpretation of that line? You brought yourself to an unusual thing. That the Prophet didn't say what we leave is sadaqah. Because number one, when, the, when, when he passed away, under the same claim, he was buried in that house. Yep. So there's inconsistency there. Again, I'm not trying to be uh, offensive. I'm just trying to show that there isn't really consistency with how the, these practices were adopted. And it's not like that all the Sahaba or all the Khulafa al-Rashidun agreed on this. Because like I emphasized earlier, the second caliph gave it back. He gave Fadak back. And the third caliph, Uthman ibn Affan, took it away. And in the time of Muawiyah, the sad truth is that he gave it to three people. He gave it to Marwan ibn al-Hakam. He gave it to another individual, I think, uh, Uthman. Uh, Amr ibn Uthman, sorry. So he gave it to Amr ibn Uthman, Marwan ibn al-Hakam. And you know who the third one is? Yazid ibn Muawiyah. Well, yeah. So when you started to see this, uh, it's quite sad in a, a number of ways. One thing I, I want to highlight is the, uh, the value of Fadak was so huge, it was distributed on three people, by the way. And these people weren't your average citizen in Islam. These people were wealthy. So what's yeah. considered wealth, wealthy to them is different from what's considered wealthy, wealthy to, to the ordinary average citizen, yeah. average citizen in that state. So you mentioned um, something about Fadak before we... We started the podcast. We were talking about the things that were available in Fadak. Yeah. That were yeah. not available anywhere else in Arabia. Could you yeah. elaborate on that? For so us? this was mentioned in a book called Fatima is Fatima with Dr. Ali Shariati. And another book called The, Tra the Tragedy of Az Zahra by Jafar Murtad al Amali. Mm. And also is also mentioned in, and this is the most important work, I think, Sheikh Abbas al Kumi's work, House of Sorrows. Yeah. So he's trying to show here the importance of Fadak in a governmental sense, in a bureaucracy sense. So he says, Fadak, first of all, was one of the few place, places in that surrounding that contained water. And when the first caliph was about to give Fadak, the second actually, which was Umar ibn Khattab, had an interesting uh, input here. He goes, where are we going to feed the army from? So that's how big Fadak was in its offering, in its value. So where is Fadak located? So Fadak is about 160 kilometers uh, away from Medina. I'm not too exact how big it is as the size of the land. According to Sayyidina Muhammad Bakr al-Sadr, it took the Ahl al-Bayt a, a difference between two to three days of walking just to get there. So yeah, it was about 160 k's far from Medina. 
it was inhabited by the Jews. And I, I don't want to get into the fuqh. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of issues regarding um, Fadak. Yeah, like because Fadak wasn't acquired through war, no. which means Fadak was not to be distributed as a spoil of war. That's right. And that's why uh, when I mentioned that Fadak was given to Fatima during the uh, life of Rasulullah, this is emphasizing the notion that it was gifted to Rasulullah by the Jews yep. as a command of Rasulullah. So if you were to look at Surah Al-Hashr, uh, specifically verse 6, 7, and 8, you would find uh, such philosophies being portrayed. That's right. And it's different to other spoils of war. For example, Khaybar. Yes, um, exactly. Where the spoils of the land were distributed. I believe it was in Khaybar. Yep. So um, uh, that land was, uh, those kind of lands were taken uh, via war or using the Muslim army. And therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had ordained to distribute it accordingly. Amongst uh, the Muslims. Amongst the Muslims. But uh, Fadak was, uh, and it's interesting how Fadak was taken just to add, Imam Ali salam was summoned by Rasulullah and he goes, go open Fadak. And he's the raya, he's the flag. Imam Ali was the flag bearer of Rasulullah That's in right. all battles that he attended, of course. There were a few battles he didn't attend for other reasons, but we wouldn't get into it today. Imam Ali was very uh, uh, intelligent on, on how he acquired Fadak. So uh, obviously the Muslim army was positioned outside and Imam Ali had went with the flag which was the flag of Islam, the flag of Tawheed, which Sayyidah Zahra is speaking about here. And she speaks about Imam Ali. I will reference this after. Uh, Imam Ali uh, jumps just for his head to be elevated over the um, walls of Fadak. Mm. And he does Adhan. And he gets a quarter way through. And then the Jews send that they surrender. And that was the influence of Imam Ali, that he actually didn't do a via battle. He didn't fight anyone. He just recited Adhan. And not even the full Adhan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was about a quarter way through. Our ulama mentioned specifically Sheikh Al-Mufid or if you to look at Mirat uh, Al-Uqul mm. specifically, even Sheikh Saduq's commentary on that was available on how Imam Ali acquired it. So that's the fucking understanding. And to me, that's more black and white. And uh, what I wanted to speak about today was what kind of notions is Sayyidah Zahra portraying? How does Fadak relate to the Caliphate? It, it gets quite complicated, but it's interesting that it's not just simply a fuqhi perspective. That's right. Yeah, it wasn't an indifference in fuqh. It was an indifference in theology between the, fir uh, the first and Fatima. During her sermon, you realize she mentions that she's the daughter of Rasulullah on multiple occasions. Yes. Why is there that constant reminder during the sermon? Well, uh, first of all, I think this was done intentionally Maybe to speak to future crowds that, like I said earlier, if someone has the misrepresentation that there could be more than one daughter, no, there's more than one daughter. And when you asked me before about the role of Fatima in Islam, when Rasulullah was speaking to the Christians, for example, um, the Christians of Najran, and uh, Rasulullah had given them all the possible evidence they needed, and they still didn't want to change their mind regarding the belief of the Trinity, uh, specifically that uh, the notion that God has a son named Jesus Christ. Mm. And that's the, one of the most fundamental notions that the, the Quran is trying to challenge. So after all that, the Quran, uh, uh, sorry, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran uh, tells Rasulullah that if after all that evidence, tell them to bring their women and- Do mubahala. Do mubahala, right? The event of mubahala was mentioned. Uh, but specifically the, the language that is used. And I like to always emphasize on the language because it gives you a, an idea Definitely. of the thoughts of the person who's speaking. Whether that person is a prophet or just an imam or a companion, you have to analyze the context of the language in the time. So Allah SWT orders Rasulullah tell your women, again plural, 
نساؤنا نساؤنا ونساؤكم واولادنا واولادنا وابنائنا وابنائكم سوري وانفسنا وانفسكم now although the word nisana was used in plural why did only one woman show only one woman attending yeah yeah why was there only one woman representing the nisana of rasulullah and not others because he had nine wives and according to others other daughters so why weren't they present so that's why she's trying to say wa'lamu anni fatima no one else can say this and this is something that imam al-husayn said in karbala like there's no one else that can say i'm the grandson of rasulullah that's right this is not a statement that can be replicated so it's interesting how both and like you see like there's a similitude between the sermons of sayyida zainab and sayyida zahra there's a similitude in the sermon of sayyida zahra and imam al-husayn in, in karbala you see the same concepts being challenged the same notions being discussed and it's interesting and let me uh, reference the role of imam alihi when you are uh, asking me earlier on uh, when we were speaking uh, about the role of imam ali in this context and look what she says and how she is describing imam ali alayhi salam she goes whenever the polytheists kindled the fires of war allah would pour it out and the adherents of satan would manifest themselves or the beastly ones among the polytheists opened their mouths of envy he the prophet would dispatch his brother meaning imam ali towards them he again imam ali would crush them and extinguish the blaze of their fire with his sword and bore them extreme brutality in the way of allah and strove to obey the commands of allah he was the nearest to the prophet of allah and the master of the friends of allah he was ready to serve the creations looking over the welfare of the people again describing the role of imam ali in that period endeavoring and tolling in his way he was not affected with the censor or anyone else while you were living a life of pleasure and peace and you were far away from the severity of the battle wow exactly yeah, okay so that's that's a massive statement yeah she's highlighting here that the people at the front line was imam ali yeah. alayhi salam and those close to imam ali and the others who were more sluggish were very comfortable and she went she uses the word sluggish or reference it in a bit actually he then say uh, sorry she then says then you waited that we the ahlul bayt may be engulfed in the severity of trials meaning the passing of rasulullah and waited to hear this news and in the heart of the battle you reached you retreated and fled from the battlefield so she's showing that imam ali played a role no other companion could replicate and you will find other ulama specifically within the sunni school of thought that would openly say that the best among the companions was abu bakr texts like this show otherwise texts like this show that imam ali was unlike anyone else not just as a companion as an imam as well so just continuing on imam ali that you mentioned here his battles and his his stance what was his role Okay, I want to explain his role through the language of Sayyida Zahra here. And the reason she is mentioning it is she wants to draw a comparison between Imam Ali and the rest of the Islamic nation. Specifically in the notion where it is mentioned that Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam says that ana wa Ali abawa hadhihi al-umma that Ali and I are the fathers of this nation, the Islamic nation specifically. So he said Zahra is describing Imam Ali and it's actually beautiful to see uh, the love manifest in her language. So she starts saying 
He was ready to serve the creation of Allah, looking over the welfare of the people. Endowing and tolling in his way, and he was not affected with the censor while you were living, like we said earlier, a life of pleasure and peace. And were far away from the severity of the battles, you were in enjoyment and security while the Imam was in battle. Yeah. Then you waited that we, the Ahlul Bayt, may be engulfed in the severity of trials, like I said earlier, and waited to hear this news. And in the heart of the battle, you retreated and fled from the battlefield. And we have uh, sim- uh, numerous occasions of this, whether it is the battle of uh, Uhud, where they left Rasulullah and uh, turned back on the hills, basically, leaving mm-hmm. Rasulullah just by himself. Or it is in other battles, where the Muslims were greater in number and they still fled, by the way, and Imam Ali remained. This is specifically in reference to the Battle of Hunayn. That Imam Ali stayed behind with the Prophet. And the reason she's mentioning the role of Imam Ali salam, in the defense of Islam is she wants to draw one of the uh, uh, most important notions is the criticism or against the treachery of the men present at that time. And so she's comparing Imam Ali and his role in the defense of Islam to these people. So she continues to say, Thus, when Allah the Almighty exalted his prophet from the perishable world, so Allah SWT took his life away. By the way, he knocked on the door. Yeah. And you have others that knew that these people were present and wanted to barge in, by the way. And I'm making a reference here. So she says, when Allah Almighty uh, exalted his prophet from this perishable world towards the abode of his prophet, so the, the, the akhirah, the hereafter, the thorns of hypocrisy became manifest and the mantle of your religion gave. And the astray ones who were silent until yesterday, meaning yesterday as in not just the immediate yesterday, but she's making here a reference to the time before Rasulullah, yep. suddenly started shrieking. And the degraded and the mean one came out of their burrows into the open ground. And the valiant ones of the polythist of the falsehood started roaring. Look at the language she's using. Now, meaning after the death of the Prophet, these people, these very people have taken the reins of authority. So she's questioning the institution that's been put in place. She's questioning the account of Saqifah. She's questioning that... Why is it that you are electing somebody when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had appointed a leader for you? So again, she's not talking to this from a hooky perspective. She's talking from a theological perspective. Now these very people have taken the reins of authority into their hands and Satan has raised his head from the place of concealment, inviting you towards evil. Thus he found you to be among those accepting his invitation. And you held him in esteem with the intention of securing a position of being deceived. Satan invited you to rebel and found you to be among the base and meanest of people. And he incited you and your rage and thus you became enraged. Then you started to snatch the rights of others. One of them was Fatadak. And entered the spring that did not belong to you. And you did all of this when not much time has passed. This is the true calamity. That while the Ahlul Bayt and the Muslim nation as a whole was lamenting the passing of the Prophet, this itself was another calamity. And she's 
making a reference here to how little time has passed and already everything's been taken yeah. yeah already such instances happening so we have to actually look into this in a deeper meaning we have to understand what is Sayyidah Zara trying to say here so she continues and he did all of this but not much time had had passed since the passing of the Prophet and the wound of his death was deep in our hearts. Wow, that's what she's saying. They're still mourning. Yeah, the loss of course, of the she's still hurt from this and has not yet healed. And the cause of the Prophet was not even laid into rest. This is something that I want to emphasize on. So she's basically saying that their actions were taken before the, the Prophet was buried. Yeah. Again, it's important to here to bring into attention that when uh, uh, Rasulullah was on his was on the deathbed, you know the companions and the, and the Imam Ali mainly was washing his holy body, and Abu Bakr was approached by the second caliph, Omar, uh, <laughs> informing him that hey, there is a meeting called Saqifa. Now the word Saqifa in Arabic comes to the notion that Saqifa comes from the word Saqaf, meaning sealing, mm. and the meeting of Saqifa had taken place although the companions were watching Rasulullah. So in the, in the context of Saqifa, you had the, uh, the Ansar of Rasulullah who were not the Muhajireen. Now we know that the companions are broken down into Ansar and Muhajireen, those who migrated from Mecca and those who were in Medina, yep. they're referred to as Ansar. The Ansar under the leadership of Sa'd ibn Ubadah were already choosing a Khalifa among themselves. Through which method? The method of them electing a Khalifa among themselves. So it was, it was, a, it was a vote? Yeah. So uh, mind you, the first and second Caliph weren't present here. That's right. They so, attended later. Yeah, whether they had attended this meeting or not, that was going to take place. Meaning even others had the intention of not giving the true term bay'ah to Imam Ali salam. And is there a premise for... Uh, a voting system in Islam? I mean, it depends what uh, lens you look at it from. You look at it from, sorry. Um, if you were to look through the perspective of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, definitely yes. And they have multiple occasions where they address our criticism of them. So Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab has a book titled The Salat al-Rad ala al-Rafida, The Message of Replying to the Rafida. And this is um, to refer to the Shia. Yep. Um, one of the... Um, names that were known as, as Rafida because we didn't accept or we did Rafida upon, uh, we didn't accept the rulership of the first, second and third within that system. Yep. So to the, Sun to the Sunnis, there is a theological basis for this, but among us, the Shia of Ahlul Bayt specifically, even among the Zaydis, even among other fractions on the Shia, like the Ismailis or like the uh, Waqifites, mm -hmm. uh, they are under the opinion that Allah SWT appointed Imam Ali Later, they differ in which Imam took leadership after, <coughs> but the basis of uh, Khilafah is established uh, through the appointment of Allah SWT and not through election by man. So the, the difference is a voting system and divine appointment. Yes. Um, and this is something that is spoken about in her sermon. And let me continue how she starts to comment on how the Muslims acted swiftly in uh, going away from the true sunnah of Rasulullah in that notion, whether ev even if you look at it from a political sense. So she continues to say, you acted very swiftly, dreading the outbreak of agitation. So 
So they were claiming that if we don't choose a Khalifa quickly, a fitna is going to befall us. So she goes, are you actually afraid of the outbreak of agitation? Beware, she says. They themselves have fallen into this pit, which is ironic because she's saying, you were afraid of this outbreak of an agitation and now you've fallen into this. Yeah, so it's happened. Exactly. Regardless of your actions, it exactly. has happened. And you're the perpetrator of this. Surely into trial have they already fallen and verily hell encompasses the infidels. Which is a very nice concluding statement. She continues to say, you did not even wait that the tempest may calm down. Rather, you hasten to take the reins of the caliphate into your own hands. After having acquired it, meaning the caliphate, you started to ignite the fire of mutiny. And I mentioned that earlier. Yep. Where she says that Rasulullah's body is probably still a bit warm. Mm. It's not really that cold yet. And you here have already went fusing and You've basically established a system. Establishing an institution that she was showing that she was against. That's what she was showing. So she says, she says, we have no choice but to fear the cuts of your daggers and the piercings of your spears. And obviously she means this metaphorically and not that. On top of losing the prophet, she's saying that you have hurt us in this way. And it's, it's pretty fascinating how she's expressing herself. Mind you, this is possibly days to a week after Rasulullah's death. And like I said earlier, she passed away six months after. So she didn't really witness what happened later on, how we mentioned right. during the other khulafa, how they even went further away from Rasulullah. This is just really fresh. So what would she comment on other stuff? So if she were given a chance to give another sermon after those, oh, I mean, we I don't wish, know what would happen. I wish. And maybe he, she's speaking in retrospect. Maybe he, she's speaking to a future audience. That's right. It's possible. So it's possible. Up, up to this point, I believe it's fair to say that this sermon, even though it's called Khutbat Fadak, <clears throat> or the Sermon of Fadak, referring to um, Sayyidah Fatima going about this sermon in, in an attempt to win back her right, essentially. But I believe it's fair to say that this sermon is so much more than the right of Fadak. Rather, it's, as you mentioned, all those different aspects of, for example, Tawheed, Quran, Imamah. So in uh, in seeing that um, manifest through her sermon, what do we learn about Fatima al-Zahra as the link between prophethood and imam? You could look at that through uh, I, uh, uh, a direct understanding that she's the mother of the imams. She's the daughter of Rasulullah. And she brought to this world Imam Hassan and Hussein through the lineage of imam continued through. You can look at it directly, but you can look at it at a deeper sense. Number one, Sayyidah Zahra was trying to establish herself as a hujjah. And I referenced before a hadith mentioned by Imam al-Baqir that Fatima is a hujjah on the imams who are hujjah on the people. On the people for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The fact that Sayyidah Fatima didn't just stay at home and let bygones be bygones and not express her opinion and not show that she is dissatisfied with the social context of the events, this means something. She went out. She expressed herself. She stood with the utmost courage and challenged the institution where there was, an, there was an environment of fear to rise. And she did that as a woman, 17 years of age, not fearing the consequence and ready to die for the cause. And that's why she mentions the role of Imam Ali because Imam Ali operated in the same philosophy. Can we say that Fatima al-Zahra learned that method from Imam Ali? Or was this 
in Fatima al-Zahra. I wouldn't be surprised if Imam Ali himself can learn from Sayyidah Fatima al-Zahra. It's not surprising to me at all. But Fatima wanted to show, number one, as a wife to Imam Ali alayhi salam, she was the utmost supporter of his cause. Not because he's her husband. Not because, oh, I'm his wife, I have to support him. Now this is a defense of Imama. This is defense of Imama. The same way Asiya spoke against uh, uh, Fir'aun. Fir'aun yeah. You know, she wasn't okay with his behavior. After she discovered the truth regarding the existence of Allah, she said what she said. And she had her stance. And she was persecuted for it. So Sayyidah Zahra wanted to stand next to Haq, regardless of who it was. And it happened to be Imam Ali in this circumstance. And she was going to stand next to her husband under any circumstance at all. So continuing to analyze the sermon, you, we looked at the criticism against tre the treachery of men, that section of the yep. sermon. And now we look at the reasoning of Fatima for Fadak. Now we spoke about it a little bit before, about inheritance and the Quran. But what approach does she take for Fadak and for her right? So she brings forward arguments from the Quran that, like I said, mm. supersede uh, a hadith that's transmitted through the first caliph. Mm. And she's trying to show that if we are to go or judge this circumstance in accordance to the holy book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's why she asks him, are you following the customs of the day of ignorance or are we following the sunnah of Rasulullah? Mm. Are we following the deen of Muhammad bin Abdullah or are we following the days of ignorance? Because it depends. Which avenue do you want to take? So in mentioning that, is she saying that if you want to take the age of ignorance, I can go that way too with my reasoning. And if you take the reasoning of Islam, then I can go with that stance as well. She's showing that his arguments regarding the inheritance of prophets or her possession of fadak cannot be based on Islamic findings. It can only be based on what she references as the customs of the age of ignorance or any other custom possible. Maybe there are other intentions present. I can't assure that. So essentially she's saying that the taking away of the right of Fatima al-Zahra was through the lens of the age of ignorance rather than through the lens of the age of Islam. Exactly. And there were benefits for them to take that land. Like I said, economically, Fadak produced so much value that it was used to actually feed and, and equip the army. So it was huge. And it wasn't just a materialistic sense. It's interesting here because Ibn Taymiyyah... Yeah, it can be looked at as Fatima Zahra is wanting to bring, bring back her <laughs> material possession. Exactly. So Ibn Taymiyyah, he goes, I'm surprised with the Shia that they are proud of this argument because uh, in reality, this shows a, an essence of her nifaq, an essence of her hypocrisy that she was so interested in their materialistic uh, accumulation. Which is unfortunate to take that simplistic view of what this sermon is. Of course, because let me uh, explain something to you. When we are trying to understand the, uh, the sunnah of Ahlul Bayt, which is the sunnah of Rasulullah in dealing with orphans or charity or like the Quran mentions, giving in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, no one supersedes Ahlul Bayt. And this is not just a haphazard statement that I'm saying. If you were to look, for example, at Surat Al-Insan, when uh, the Ahlul Bayt were fasting for three consecutive days and they didn't have food. Mind you, Ahlul Bayt were very well off, but they didn't do it for themselves. Right. Always giving for the sake of Allah, giving the sake of Allah. Despite 
how rich or well off the Ahlul Bayt might be, right? If you were to like uh, uh, estimate their value, they didn't leave, live a life other than an average normal citizen in Islamic State. Especially Sayyidah Fatima, she, she even gave her own wedding dress. Not just that, there's a, there's a story which I love to mention and mentioned to you before. Sheikh Zaman Hasnawi narrates this, mm. uh, where a peasant comes to Rasulullah and he goes to him, I'm a poor man and I, I need money to travel. I need clothes on my back and I need a mode of transportation to go see my family. He goes to him, can you help me? And he goes to him, go to the door of Fatima. Wow. Exactly. She never uh, sends anyone empty-handed. Exactly. So he goes to the house of Fatima, knocks on the door. That conversation happens and he tells her situa- his situation. So she gives him the necklace that she's wearing. That's right. Necklace that she's wearing. So he returns to Rasulullah. He explains what's happened. Rasulullah tells him, go to the market. Sell it. Rasulullah is being very... Socially aware, I believe here, where he's telling him, go to the marketplace. You know, instead of, you know, here's your necklace, go yeah. away. No, he's telling him, go sell it, make money from this. Yeah. Teaching him a lesson. Oh. Exactly. So he's going, he's going to the market and an aristocrat of Arabia sees this necklace and he asks him what he wants for it. So the man tells him, I need a mode of transport to go see my family. He clothes on my back and money for the transport. Mm-hmm. So he gives him all he wants, takes the necklace and wraps it in a kafan yamani. So... Yamani silk was uh, very expensive of course. in the days of Arabia. So he wraps it in this kafan Yamani and he gives it to his slave. And he tells him, go return this to Sayyidah Fatima. And he goes to him, when you return this, you'll be a free man. So he goes to the door of Fatima, Zahra, and she tells him, we don't accept sadaqah. That's right. He tells her, it's not sadaqah. Fiha fakku raqabati. So in it, I will be a free man. She accepts this. So uh, Sheikh Zaman al-Hasnawi, he, he just sits back and he goes, let's take a look at this, this necklace and how blessed it is. Because he went from the chest of Fatima al-Zahra to a poor man. He gave him a mode of transport, money and clothes on his back. It was then given to an aristocrat who wrapped it in a kafan Yamani and gave it to his slave. This slave went and gave it back to Fatima al-Zahra and was freed. And this necklace came and sat back on the chest of Fatima al-Zahra. Amazing. Like this story isn't just about okay, for, uh, the Ahlul Bayt give. Yeah. But it's also a lesson in that if you give in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will return it tenfold. Exactly. Because if we look at just the ajr uh, or the reward Fatima al-Zahra would have received just by giving away this necklace in everything that he achieved. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala returned this necklace back to her. And if, if there's so much blessing and so many positive uh, consequences from just one necklace. How many positive consequences can you see in Fadak? Or other than Fadak? Like I referenced Surat Al-Insan when they were fasting for three days. They fasted uh, for a specific reason and every time where they wanted to break their fast, right. someone would knock on their door for three consecutive days so they had to break their fast yeah. on water. And they'd give the food away. Yeah, and Surat Al-Insan detailedly speaks about this in detail and where such people are going to end up. And, he, and Allah SWT goes into the detail of uh, uh, explaining and describing their status in heaven. Uh, it's, it's pretty fascinating. And that's why Sayyidah Zahra wants to bring in the notions of the Quran, wants to bring in the notions of the sunnah of her father, to say that I'm well aware of the sunnah of Rasulullah 
and I'm acting in accordance to this. That's why, that's why if you're providing any other argument, is it in accordance to the same book that we're following? Because the Quran was present there. That's right. So it's interesting. So just uh, going back and taking a look at it, I say the Fatima fighting for a materialistic gain. How is that argument disproved? I know it's an easy way of disproving it. Like this is Fatima the Zahra and her status and everything like that. But let's take a look at it uh, from a deeper sense. Why is it, how is it that we can disprove this argument? In this sermon specifically, Sayyidah Zahra wasn't, didn't want to prove Fadak was hers for a materialistic gain. She wanted to show that even if I had Fadak, I'm not going to even spend it in my own personal view. I will explain to you how. Sayyidina Muhammad Bakr Sadr actually comments on this. And it's a good question that you ask because those who uh, go to defend the, uh, the stance of the first Khalifa, mainly of course Abu Bakr, in not providing Fatak to Fatima Zahra after her argument, they say, how about when Imam Ali was the Khalifa, why didn't he take Fatak? This is another argument also um, adopted by Ibn al-Jawzi in his book, uh, The Deception of the Devil. That's why he describes us as the deception of the devil, which is okay, I mean, I'm not offended, but uh, he's trying to say that when Ali was the Khalifa, why didn't, uh, why didn't he give Fatak back to the inheritors? So he goes, I don't want to open the door of Taqi. He knows what he's saying in in the book Fadak uh, in Islamic History. He goes, I don't want to say the Imam acted in Taqiyya because I don't want to place the action of an Imam from my own interpretation. But I want to say that after the passing of Sayyidah Fatima Zahra, who inherited her? Her kids and her husband from a Fuqi perspective. So she, so, so Sayyidah Muhammad Bakr Sadr continues to explain that even after all the years had passed, we're talking about 25 years after, Long time, right? That's a quarter of a century. That's right. And Imam Ali was the Khalifa. He was the number one man in charge in the office. Why did he just simply take Fadak and tell people, look, you guys were all wrong. I'm going to act indifferent to the Sunnah of Abi Bakr. I'm going to give Fadak back to the right. The right, the right, right, right for heirs, which are the children and the husband. Said Muhammad Bakr Sadr, he goes, in, in reality, when Imam Ali came into power, because before that, like I explained earlier, Fatak was in the hands of the people like Yazid ibn Muawiyah. This is, this is a shame if we've reached that. If we've reached that point in history, it's a shame. It's, it's a very uh, sad joke. Sayyid Muhammad Sadr says, in reality, the sons of Fatima, the four children of Fatima, and him, himself, Imam Ali, had spent Fatak into the affairs of the Muslim with their own consent. So even that they got it back, they didn't spend it in their own personal affairs. Then Muhammad Bakr al-Sadr continues to comment to say that they spent it into the Islamic nation, back into the Islamic nation, like the necklace again, yep. back into the Islamic nation. No material gain whatsoever because they weren't interested in that. And that's why she tells him, that's why Sayyidah Fatima tells Abu Bakr, okay, you might have gotten your way in this dunya, but don't forget one of the usul that we were talking about, which is the mi'ad, which is the day of judgment, there's going to be a day of judgment. Day of reckoning, yeah. Yeah, a day of reckoning where Allah is the judge and the custodian of that judgment is Muhammad. This Muhammad is my father. That's why she kept saying, that the Zaim, the leader of that day of judgment is Rasulullah Muhammad and he's going to judge accordingly. So you can have your way in this world, but in the hereafter, there's going to be a judge. So she was trying to echo these usul through her khutbah. 
Is she essentially saying that, look, I, I know that regardless of what I'm going to say, you won't respond in the way that you should. Yeah. Rather, I'm saying this uh, for posterity. I'm saying this for future generations. Of course. And I'm saying this to establish that I am the daughter of Muhammad and I followed the sunnah of Muhammad in the way that it should be followed. And I am letting you know that regardless of what you do on this day, I'll be getting my right back on the final day. She was also speaking to the Islamic nation at that part because uh, a part she would say, oh, son of Abu Kuhafa. And then at other part she would say, oh, Muslims, oh, oh Ansar, or oh, people who used to support the Prophet. Where are you now to support me? So Why she's, aren't you she's directing these statements to specific people or people. To specific people and to the Islamic nation as a whole. She's, she's putting the Islam, Islamic nation responsible for this. It's interesting. She's not just speaking on a surface-based level. Is this because deep. they did not stand for the right of the sunnah of Rasulullah, not her right personally? Both. She's trying to show that if you're going to take my right, which is Fadak, it's the right of Rasulullah. This is the right of Rasulullah, but this is showing, this is one example of many other examples that how you are going away from the sunnah of Rasulullah. And this might sound offensive to others. I understand that, but I don't mean it in any malice. Let me uh, quote exactly what she says. Um, when she references the day of resurrection, she goes, he, it is before you. Take it as if it is prepared for you. It will dispute with you on the day of resurrection. So that land, that land will talk against you in the day of judgment. What a fair judge Allah is. So again, she's putting her trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That tawakkul, the Ahlul Bayt show us, that reliance on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's none like other at all. Honestly, no one, you can, I, 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 I ask, Show me someone who has tawakkul on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala like the Ahlul Bayt. Same way they did, yeah. Of course. And she continues to say, what a fair judge Allah is on that day. And the master is Muhammad and the appointment is a day of punishment. And on that day shall perish who say false things. So she's saying that there's a notion of akhirah here. This isn't just an haphazard thing. You might have presented your arguments here. You can say, Qala Rasulullah and I heard a hadith. But truly on a day of judgment, this land is going to dispute with you. It's going to testify against you. Exactly. And she's echoing again to Usul. She spoke about Imama, about Caliphate. She spoke about the institution that they started. And, and she spoke about Tawheed in the beginning. In the, in the way she describes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the process of him creating the creation. It's, it's phenomenal. It is. Phenomenal. And now she's echoing again on the concept of a day of judgment. So there's a, there's a constant referring to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his justice in this sermon. Exactly. Exactly. Is that because they lived that tawheed as, as the Ahlul Bayt? They lived that tawheed. And as you mentioned, there's tawakkul in Allah that is so profound. And in every dealing, even in a situation where her right has been completely ripped away from her, her father has just passed away, she, her right is to be mourning in these, in these days. Exactly. Not to be standing in the masjid yep. of Rasulullah and Speaking out against the injustice that has just occurred to her, not days or a week after the passing of the Prophet. Is that again just an, a simple uh, manifestation of the Tawheed that uh, Fatima al-Zahra had? To look at the notion of Tawheed through her lens is complex. Um, and it's actually beyond me. Uh, but I do want to reference some, something she says. She says... Uh, Alhamdulillah, الذي جعل كلمة الإخلاص تأويلها. 
In Arabic, this is phenomenal. It is. Glory be to Allah, or thanks be to Allah, who manifested the word of Tawheed, meaning the oneness of Allah through the interpretation of ikhlas and loyalty. And go look at Surah Kulhu and you understand what that means. So Sayyidah Zahra, and I don't know how she does this, like genuinely speaking, I don't know how she can bring in these theological concepts and relay them all together. That's why I commented and spoke about the PhD study. That's why I, th I thought it was important to mention that there was cohesion inside the literary devices used by Sayyidah Zahra. There was an element of grammatical cohesion that they didn't differ. And that's something you, you rarely see in Islamic history. Definitely. You rarely see. I mean, the only time I could reference it is with Rasulullah and his sermon and definitely in looking into national Bala. Because so Imam Ali does comment on that. When I was speaking earlier uh, that certain uh, uh, scholars of the Salafi school of thought or even generally the Sunni school of thought when they argue that why didn't Ali take uh, Fadak during his time? Imam Ali in sermon 45 of Nahjah Balagha says, Fadak was in our hands, but there was people who were stingy and there were people who were very sluggish to support us. So I find no point. Ali said that. A man who says this whole world in its entirety is equal to the snot that's hanging from the nose of a goat. I mean, it's a very vivid description. It is, and it's very graphic. <laughs> very graphic. Why is Imam saying this? To show him, I'm, I don't care about accumulating wealth because we spoke about earlier in the social justice sermon about Imam Hussein that Imam Ali, when he became a Khalifa, his life didn't change much. He no, actually lived a poorer life, mm. possibly. And he was very aware of that. And that's what Shahid al-Sadr wanted to seize the opportunity. Uh, and he did this at Najaf, by the way, during Hawza, that he wanted to look at the Islamic lens of Fadak and look at the dispute that took place between Sayyidah Fatima Zahra and the first caliph. He, he had to do that. And to him, it was an honor. The way he speaks about it is actually very touching. Um, and the, the dedication he gives himself is quite touching, to be honest. Um, a lot of uh, effort was, was portrayed by this man in this book. Honestly, because he goes later to speak about other uh, 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 notions that I think were important, like how do we look at analyzing the history of the first century? And he starts comparing that this, it's differently than we're analyzing history in the 11th century or the 10th century or even the third century. Looking at the first Islamic century, he says it was very complex. And that's why it's important to understand what manifested later. What manifested later all the way that Muawiyah became a Khalifa? Such instances do answer the question. They do. Just touching on that, why was it difficult and complex to look at the first century of Islam in, uh, in referring to the Sermon of Fadak? Wow, a good question as well. A historian would better answer the question. It depends who you ask. But uh, during the, the first century of Islam, and specifically uh, uh, after the death of Rasulullah, you, there was a movement to discourage people from writing the hadith of Rasulullah. So that was there. And Imam Ali was actually kind of aware of that. That's why if you were to look at the book of Muraja'at by Sayyid Muhammad, Sayyid Abd al-Hassan Sharifuddin al-Musawi, my apologies, he is conversating and he's sending letters to a Sunni alim uh, named Sikh Salim al-Hajari. Mm. And the language between them is very respectful, by the way. I highly recommend the book of Muraja'at, mm. uh, Sunni Shia discourse. It's amazing. amazing. Yeah. 
Um, and he references this, that there were attempts uh, during that time to stop people from the raiding from the Prophet because people's feed uh, the fitna. And Sayyidah Zahra actually alludes to that, that are you fearing agitation? Are you fearing fitna? So to Sayyidah Muhammad Bakr Sadr, it was more complex to look at the first Islamic history in comparison to other centuries because later the science started developing. At that time, it was still early days. Mm. And, and, and of course, people were more confused than before. And going back to the sermon now, we reached the point of intense criticism of the Ansara. And I find this, this section of the, the sermon to be so fascinating. Of course, because she turns, she turns towards them and she specifically calls them exactly. out. Exactly. And, and the, the, the language she uses is what captures my attention the most. So she begins by, she, you mentioned she turns towards the Ansar, mm -hmm. which again, this is, it's not, she's not doing it just, you know, for the sake of doing it. There is a meaning behind of course. turning towards the Ansar. I'm, now I'm speaking directly to you, yes. not to the other Muslims. I'm speaking directly to you. And you'll see her, her language in the sermon change. That's right. Although there's cohesion grammatically, but the language and the, her tone That's changes. Right. Her tone changes. And she says, a group of valorous men. Yeah. The aids of the nation. Now that, just that, and then she says the helpers of Islam. Those three sentences, I believe, are specifically chosen mm -hmm. to begin your direct dialogue with these with the Ansar. Of course, they were specifically chosen. She's basically telling them, look at the status that you have. And then she says, what is this lackness that you're displaying in regards to me, while you are witnessing the oppression? being meted upon me, but you still lie in a deep sleep. Wow, deep sleep. And in Arabic, I'm pretty Amazing. sure she says ghafla. Yeah, that's right. Which is, it's, it's a lot more than a deep sleep. Yeah. It's complete unawareness. And she knows who she's talking to. She's speaking to uh, a group of people who supported Rasulullah when the Meccans didn't welcome him. That's right. So these people had a status in Islam. Of course. They, they have a status in Islam. Definitely, of course. Of course. And that's why she's expecting them. Like I said before, she was comparing these companions to Imam Ali. She was expecting them to support her. That's right. And the fact that they were sluggish towards her cause hurt her. She's saying, I have a, I have a value in the Islamic nation. It's not uh, a tone of uh, arrogance no, no, not or a tone all. of uh, uh, bragging about herself. She is recognizing her value. And she's telling people, for your own sake, you need to. Yeah, this me. is for your safety and your sake. Exactly. I must be considered in this situation. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So continuing on, uh, this is where, as you mentioned, her tone begins to change. Did my father not say that the rights of a father for his children must be considered? How soon have you changed tracks, even though you possess the strength to stand up for my rights and are capable of supporting me regarding my claim? Now, She's looking at this as, you know what Rasulullah has said. You lived with this man and you are the ones that supported this man in his message. But as soon as he's left, your course has changed. Mm -hmm. And even though you are capable, and I find that, I can't remember where I've read this. Uh, I need to touch up on it, but, but this, there's actually a commentary on this. Even though you possess the, stand, the strength to stand up for my rights. There's a commentary on it, I believe, that says that they were very, very hesitant, the Ansar, to go against the Khalifa. Of course. Even though they were in support 
of Fatima al-Zahra in the background, essentially. And then she says, and are capable of supporting me regarding my claim. You can yeah. help me. Definitely. You can be a voice for me. She knows that, by the way. Exactly. And yet, she's the one that is here. Yeah, she's the one that is here. And unfortunately, but she has to do what she has to do. Exactly. But, but that's down. what I find amazing. Yeah. That she, okay, you guys didn't help me. You guys didn't support Rasulullah nor the door of Rasulullah in this issue. Yet you had supported Rasulullah before. Exactly. And yeah, then she's comparing the difference of time. Exactly. And then she continues and says, do you then say that Muhammad has passed away and there remains no responsibility upon us? Wow. That, that is basically saying, okay, I understand what's happening here. Yeah. It starts making more sense here. And she starts to emerge more as an, a true social activist that she's not going to sit down. She's not going to let this uh, sorrow defeat her. Mm. On the contrary, she's going to, under a mountain of sorrow, she's going to bear the spirit of her father and continue her resistance and struggle against the oppressive country. I can't help but to see the similarity between Fatima al-Zahra and Sayyidah Zainab. Of course. Bearing of all course. the sorrow of Karbala. Of course. Of course, she is, she's the daughter of Sayyidah Fatima al-Zahra. I find that amazing. The, the stark resemblance in of the course. situations, especially. Definitely. Definitely. That's why Sayyidah Fatima tried to prove to everyone that she wasn't just taking out political revenge or trying to uh, uh, just make a scene. She was trying to condemn the regime and prove social rights in order to serve their own purposes. That's right. It's amazing. So she mentions on that point, she goes, hopes have broken, mountains have crumbled after um, illustrating what has happened to the earth after the mm -hmm. uh, loss of Rasulullah. And she says, mountains have crumbled, the family of the Prophet has been lost and their sanctity has been broken as their sanctity has been dishonored after his death. So is this the first instance of the hurma of the Ahlul Bayt being broken? Wow, interesting question. Uh, Dr. Ali Shariati has actually uh, has an uh, interesting approach. He, he comments to say that Fatima knew that Hadak wasn't going to be given back. She knew that. And she knew that uh, Imam Ali alayhi salam has lost his rights. Although, that we have, although we have some accounts in history that say that during the early days when Saqifa took place, and these early days that we're speaking about, the Sermon of Fadak, uh, days, two weeks after Rasulullah's death, Imam Ali and Sayyidah Zahra will go knocking on people's doors, reminding them of Khadir, reminding them that you gave an oath, you, you gave bayha, not, not like Rasulullah says, you gave bayha, yep. there was an active You agreed response. to this. Yep. Yeah, you agreed to this. So she knows that. And even if she can't, defeat the first caliph in terms of arguing, arguing against him, she will at least condemn it. And that's for the very least. Show herself as a social activist for social justice and that although the Ansar can be silent or the other Sahaba can be silent or other figures of the Muslim nation could be silent, even if I was to stand by myself I'm and deliver a sermon, I'm still going to do it. Which reminds you of who? Sayyid ibn Ali. That's right. He says, even if I'm by myself just against, to stand against the dhulam of Bani, the oppression of Bani Umayyah, I will do so. It's amazing how the actions and the stances of Fatima al-Zahra have been echoed throughout the imamates of the 
exactly. All the imams. Exactly. And it's something that you see is consistent. It's not it's not yeah. like it happens here, but it doesn't have, it's no, no, no. it's consistent with every single imam. And other imams don't ha- don't behave in a different manner. That's they right. behave in a very similar attitude. So that consistency from zero hijrah to 250 hijrah or the time of Ghaiba, it's there. And you can you can look at the you can look at the data. The data is all there. Yeah, the, the, the literature is all there and available there. for us to see that the way Fatima Zahra spoke was the same way Imam Hussein salam spoke, the same way Imam Rada salam spoke. Yeah. So there's no indifference there. Of course, that's why when Abdullah Abdul Hassan in the book of Al Ihtijaj for Tabrasi, when he's he's trying to explain the the uh, circumstances of the event. He's simply commenting on the walk of Sayyidah Fatima in comparison to Rasulullah. So if her walk was on point that she walked like her father, her entire mannerisms revolved against Rasulullah. It's, it's fascinating. It's pretty fascinating. It's amazing to look at uh, from Rasulullah and then Sayyidah Fatima, the mother of the Imams. This, there was consistency among their mannerisms, the way they spoke, their morals. and Definitely. It's, it's something that shouldn't be ignored to of it's, course, it's something that's a, it's it's an outstanding thing, and it's not something small. No, no, definitely, because it occurs later on, even close to the time of Reba, when you have the women of the household, like say the Narjis or say the Sultan, yeah. depending on the narrations that you want to follow. Imam Hassan Al-Asghar with Imam Hassan Al-Asghar. Yeah, yes. his wives and his children they played a role in uh, preparing the masses for Reba, and that's specifically from an ethnic Ashley perspective, anyway. But it's there. It's it's definitely consistent. All the way to Ghaiba. And even more so, you'll see it consistent among the ulama of the Ahlul Bayt. 100%. Like Sayyid Muhammad Bakr Sadr's sister. You know, she, her name is Nur al Huda, by the way. Her commentary, it's, it, it reminds you of. Bint al Huda. And her, her sermon yeah. in the shrine of Imam Hussein. That's right. Powerful. Yeah. That's taking the lesson from, for example, Fatima al Zahra, yeah. Sayyid Zainab. Of course. Or her stance against oppression um, with, when you look at the civil. Um, Discourse within the uh, events in Iraq or standing against oppression. She was acting from the notion and philosophies of Sayyidah Zahra and Sayyidah Zainab. That's right. That's definitely true. So they've left uh, a lesson in, in everything. And this sermon, it basically it manifests that, that here is a lesson for everyone. It's not just for the Ansar, the Muslims at the time, and the Khalifa. No, it's for, for everyone. Of course. Here, take a lesson, and this is what I'm trying to teach you. And that's why they start with the simplest approach, which is Tawheed. That's right. For people to understand why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to be one. Why the system has to be the way it is. It's, it's pretty fascinating. It is. Uh, when I first read the sermon, to be honest, it was a bit hard to understand. Because I found uh, she started with Tawheed and she jumped from this to this. But later, I, and when I, the more literature I looked at, especially the literature of the imama, mm. I, I saw that there is a consistency. Uh, within the values of Islam being portrayed in the sermon. And so it's pretty fascinating. I've, I've looked at this sermon many times. I, I try to read it at least uh, three or four times a yeah, year. Yeah, it's very important for me. Like I read, uh, for example, Khutbah Shaq Shaqiyya, yeah, uh, Khutbah Fadak, yeah. and Khutbah Al-Sham. Those three. Of so the course. sermon of Shaq Shaqiyya by Imam Ali, yeah. uh, sermon of Fadak by Fatima Al-Zahra, and the sermon of Sham uh, by Sayyidah Zainab salam. I try to read those uh, throughout the year on multiple occasions, but Every time I read them, there's something else that catches your eye and you're like, I've read this 10 times, but I've 
never looked at this. Definitely. And and let me remind you of something that Sayyidah Zahra knew that she was going to leave the earth six months after Rasulullah. Rasulullah had told her. Uh, in the narration specifically, uh, if you were to, I think this narration is specifically mentioned by Sheikh Al-Qulaini in his kafi. That, uh, and it's mentioned in the biography of Lady Zahra by Allama Al-Qurashi. Mm. He says that Rasulullah told something to Sayyidah Fatima upon she frowned and, and started crying. And then moments later, she smiled. And uh, one of the disciples of the Imam asked him, why did she frown and then smile? He goes, he told her that he will be leaving this earth. and She was sad. She started crying. And don't forget, 17 years of age, right? And then he told her, you're the first one to follow me, Fatima. And she smiled. Which 17-year-old will smile like that? That knows, okay, my father's going to pass away. You know, it's life. Everyone's going to lose their parents at one point. But I'm happy that I'm going to be the first one to follow him. She's 17, man. She's young. She is. We're all ambitious. We all have hopes in life. And we That's have right. dreams and end and end and end. And you can imagine someone like Fatima the Zahra would have had exactly. the best of dreams. The of greatest course. of, 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 course. of uh, with the most noble of intentions as That's well. That's right. So when you see these lessons also echo with Ali Al-Akbar or Sukaina or Ruqayya, it's not just a coincidence. No, not at all. Yeah, this is, this is true to the family of Rasulullah. It's not just a coincidence. It's honestly a blessing. Of it's, course. It's a blessing for us to, to be able to look at this and take something small from it. It's like uh, say, when Sayyid Ali Shariati explained that each day that passed, Sayyid Zahra became more impatient with death. Wow. Yeah, she just wanted that yearning to, she meet, her she wanted to meet her father once more. Amazing. And it's only six months. I mean, it's not that long of a time, but maybe to her it was an eternity. Of course. Our will to bear or to remain alive without Rasulullah. Losing a father is... Hard enough, but imagine losing a father who's Rasulullah. Definitely. And that's something that uh, may be echoed through to Sayyidah Zainab. You never know. And now she continues towards the end of the sermon. Um, and she mentions that the Muslims know and have read in the Quran that the, the Prophet will pass. Yep. Yeah, of course. This wasn't... Uh, and she mentions it uh, beautifully. She, she says... You were reading the Quran day and night in a loud voice, lamentingly, <laughs> in a right, normal yeah. tone and a pleasant voice. So wow. it's, they were definitely paying attention when reading these verses. And she mentions the verse, um, and Muhammad is not but an apostle. You mentioned that earlier, apostles yeah. have already passed away prior to him. Therefore, if he dies or is killed, you will turn upon your heels. And, then, and he who turns upon his heels by, will by no means do harm to Allah in the least. And soon shall we reward the grateful ones. Is she highlighting here that I don't have to tell you that you knew this was going to happen, but I'm going to anyway, just so you can revisit this? Interesting, actually. I've never thought about it from that perspective. I mean, look, look at the conclusion of her, of her sermon. She says, be aware. I have said what I have wanted to say. I think this summarizes it really nicely. I have said what I wanted to say, even though I know that you will not assist me. She knew that. So what's the point really of delivering the sermon? Right? Again, she had a more noble intention in mind. Definitely. And she was calculating things very differently than how you and I would calculate things. Because what's the point of her delivering a sermon if she knows nothing was going to happen? So she continues to say, be aware. I have said what I wanted to say, even though I know that you will not assist me as this slackness of yours to assist me has become a part of your heart. 
wow, what does that even mean? So is she saying here that I already knew that you won't be helping me? Yes. Because you have, your heart's been blackened. Mm-hmm. And sluggish. And, and lazy. And I and knew complexity. before coming here that you've strayed. And you've decided the way you want to decide. So they've, they, she knew that they had their stance, which was not, it was unwavering. Yes. But she wanted to provide them with a husha. That when the day of judgment So they can't, they don't have an excuse. Yeah. Let the whole world know. Let the whole world know, future, present and past, that Fatima bin Muhammad came to the mosque and delivered a sermon explaining to you why you might be wrong. Interesting. So she continues to say, but all of this complaint is the result of the grief of the heart and the internal rage that I have felt and that I know it is not to use, but I have said this to manifest again, explaining, she's explaining her intentions, not me. Not Hussein Faha. I'm mm. not explaining her intentions. I can't this do that. This is Fatima Zahra in her sermon. Explaining in, her intentions. In the mosque of Rasulullah, in front of the Muslims and the Khalifa yeah. of the time. So she's leaving no room for ambiguity and unclarity. She's making everything clear. Whether it's through the Quran or through the Hadith or through her own mannerisms. But I have said this to manifest my internal sorrow and to complete my proof upon to you. I just, I just want to stop you there. Those last two lines. Just want to take the result of the grief of the heart, and the internal rage that I feel, and I know that it is of no use. But I have said this to manifest my internal sorrow. Is this um, just trying to think of a way to word this? Is this a way of referencing what was said by Rasulullah? Fatima bid'atun minni. Exactly. Now we're connecting the thoughts. Fatima is a part of me. Whoever angers her angers me. And whoever angers me angers Allah. And this notion is present in the most famous literature among our brothers and sisters in Al-Sunnah uh, al Bukhari and Muslim reference this in detail. They do have their own commentary. Don't get me wrong. They say that when uh, uh, the hadith mentions that Fatima died angry with the first and the second, and did not speak to them until she passed away. They say that she did not speak to them in this regard, but in general, she did speak to them. Okay. But the evidence that we have, especially from the Ithna Ashri perspective, confirms, uh, just like the research from Ibn Abil Hadid al-Mu'tazili confirms that she actually died not happy with these two. And later, if you look into the, um, the, the, her last moments, they came actually to fix things. And then Imam Ali told her, you don't, you don't have to see them. She told him, look, look at her. We were speaking to her. She speak about her earlier as a wife. She says, the house is yours and I'm just a guest. Wow. It's your say. Imam Ali told him, come in. However, come in. I, I just want to take a look at that. Wow. Yeah. That just blew my mind. Yeah. That, that just blew my mind. This is your house. This is your house. And no, I'm your wife. You do what you want. But I will respond to them accordingly. And Imam Ali didn't dictate to them. He didn't tell them to give them. That's up to her. Not this, because this he doesn't her want decision. To. Regardless of Imam Ali's intentions as a person, Sayyidah Zahra had her, It's her haqq. That's it's right. her right. So it's up to her whether to forgive or not to forgive. Not up to me, not up to you, not even up to our ulama. They can say whatever they want. But if she decided to forgive them, that's her own prerogative. That's right. But what, what does history teach us? Especially when you look at the, um, uh, the book 
written by Sayyid Safi Gulqaypani, where mm. he says, Fatima is Ashura. Mm. Very clearly, he states that when they came asking for forgiveness, she turned away. Wow. She turned away. Other narrations, more extreme towards the spectrum, mentioned that when she, they said salam, she didn't reply. Wow. This is heavy. So what's happening isn't of normal magnitude. It's delivering something hurtful. So she continues to say, it's, it's pretty interesting. She goes, okay. You know, this okay is from me. She goes, thus, usurp it, meaning fadak. Take it and fasten it firmly. For, look what she's saying about fadak. It is weak and feeble. She's, she's wanting that land, by the way. She wants that. She wants her right. She wants look her how right. she describes it. That it's weak and feeble. And in other instances, we said that this land can dispute you on the day of judgment. So in reality, what does the land even mean? It's nothing but right. While its shame and, and disgrace will always remain over you. So you can take Fadak and you could benefit from it. But the disgrace of Fadak will always remain over you. The sign of the rage of the Supreme Allah has been cast upon you. No ambiguity again. Very firm with her wording. And it will be an everlasting disgrace upon you. And it will lead you to the fire of Allah, which will engulf the heart. So thus Allah sees you whenever you do. And then she, refer she references this verse. And soon shall those who deal unjustly know what an evil turning they will be turned into. And then she concludes this say, I am the daughter of the Prophet of Muhammad. She said it multiple times. Yes. But again, he's, ref she's he's reminding them. Yep. I am the daughter of the Prophet of Muhammad who was sent to warn you against the severe wrath of Allah. Act. Whatever you can. And verily, we to act. Here she's referencing an ayah. Yeah, indeed, Allah. Yeah. Indeed, we are waiting to. So you plan, I can plan. Allah the is the best of planners. planners. So she knew. It's funny because she's explaining to them what they're feeling and what they're thinking. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. And he didn't disrupt her. He didn't stop her. He didn't, this is more proof. He stopped. He couldn't say anything. Although when you look at the literature of Ahl-Sunnah wal Jamaha, they do say that Abu Bakr did not use this for worldly gain. He didn't give it to his family. He didn't give it to his daughter. He didn't give it to any of his sons, which... It's kind of true. He didn't. Yep. He used it for the welfare of the Muslim nation, but it, it wasn't was not his to give right. Away. It was not his right to it give wasn't to the Muslim. To give away. It's very simple. I know this can be a bit hurtful, but it wasn't his. And the literature shows that later, even the Khulafa from uh, uh, Bani Abbas gave Fadak back. And Fadak from one Khalifa to another would go to Ahl al-Bayt and back mm, to them. Yeah. And go to Ahl al-Bayt and back from them. It was like that. Every Khalifa had a different perspective. I'll take it. No, you, I'll give it back until the time of Amr and Abdul Aziz, when he uh, was influenced by certain individuals, specifically uh, Ithna Ashri individuals in the Islamic community, he decided to give Fatak back to the Muslim nation. And it's interesting. And is it in the possession of the Muslims now? Uh, I, to be honest, I don't know where, who owns Fatak or controls Fatak. I mean, being in Saudi Arabia, I highly doubt that the descendants of Ahl al-Bayt have her, um, because Saudi Arabia is the furthest you can see from Islam, truly. Um, unfortunately, they are the custodians of the Mecca and Medina, which is unfortunate. But yeah, it would be interesting actually to look into the future. Maybe that's something we could um, uh, look into later. Uh, but yeah, it's it's just look. We could sit here for hours and hours and hours, whether we are doing a Quranic reference or we are 
looking at the renowned sermon of Sayyidah Fatima, we won't get enough. And that's, no, the, um, that's the, I think that's the beauty in it. Yeah, that's the feeling I was getting. Every time I'd look to one avenue, you would open another five avenues. I was like, okay, I, I, I need to keep going. And yeah. I, I'd feel a bit lost. I'd feel a bit lost. So I, I, yeah, it was, it was a, a pleasure looking at this sermon. For me, I, I loved it. I was so excited for this. Yeah, I, I learned so much. Even looking at the different perspectives of other schools of thought on this sermon was fascinating to me. And yeah, man, it was, it was, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much for this talk. For I learned me, so Arvin. much. And Hopefully in the future we could uh, have similar topics as definitely, well. Definitely, definitely. We'll definitely plan for that. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Stimulate Your Mind is proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. For more of our podcasts where we try to cover all the interesting topics happening all over the globe and also the personal stories of people right here in our own backyard. Subscribe to Stimulate Your Mind on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. See you guys in a little while.